0: First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, do you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, the words will be on the screen behind me here in just a few minutes. You know, if you are relatively new to studying the Bible, you may wonder where uh, we are in the timeline of the Bible when we uh, open to this book of Second Samuel. Of course, this book is a part of uh, what we call the Old Testament of the Bible. So the events that we are reading about take place a long while before uh, Jesus Christ is born, about 900 years before he was born. Uh, but everything in this book and everything in the whole Old Testament was given to us to prepare us and to point us to the coming of our savior Jesus Christ. Originally, uh, the books of Samuel 1st and 2nd Samuel uh, were written in Hebrew and in the Hebrew Bible they were originally one book. Uh, we studied 1st Samuel earlier this year and we read about how a man named Saul became Israel's first king. Uh, Saul was a complex character who started out well and who looked the part of the king, Uh, but in the end God rejected Saul because he disobeyed the Lord. At the end of 1 Samuel, King Saul dies on the battlefield and a young man named David, the same David who killed Goliath with his sling and his stone, is waiting there in the wings ready to become Israel's next king. We're going to pick up the story right there. And and as we do, let's remember that we're not uh, just reading today uh, a a dry history of events that took place 3,000 years ago. This is God's Word to us. And in this history of God's people, uh, there is something that God wants His people to know and understand today. In fact, God wants to take this history... And he wants to use it to change your life and to change my life as we study his word together. And so with that in mind, let's jump in to this book together. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 16 as we begin. The word of God says, Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag, on the third day, behold, It happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son. For the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head. For your own mouth has testified against you saying i have killed the lord's anointed and father we do pray as we read your word today and as we study it father would you open our hearts to hear what you want to say to each and every one of us father you know where each of us are today in our lives father you know the decisions that are before us you know the trials that face us father you know where we need to grow Father, would you speak to us and how by your Holy Spirit would you draw us to greater faith in you? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of this message today is Good Grief. And I don't know about you, but whenever I hear those two words together, good and grief, there's only one person that I think about, and it's it's this guy uh, right here. Right, good old Charlie Brown, and um, you know, I know we're almost here at the holidays, and and in my household at least, with with my four boys, um, you know, the Thanksgiving special and the Charlie Brown Christmas special, those are kind of like required viewing, right, as we kind of move into the holidays. And and that phrase right there, good grief, uh, is really Charlie Brown's catchphrase. Uh, Because whether whether it's Lucy moving the football at the last moment or whatever it might be, there's always something that doesn't go well for him. There's always something that causes Charlie Brown to to say good grief just in disappointment about something in his life. And and, and today we're going to talk about a different kind of good grief. Because in a way, this story is about grief. It's about David's grief when he hears The news that we as the readers already know that King Saul has died in battle. But as we will see, the grief that David shows here is a good grief. It is a godly grief. And for the man who brought him the news of Saul's death, it was a surprising grief. And He thought he would get a very different reaction from David when he told him that Saul was dead. The first verse gives us the big picture of what was going on in this story when it says, Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. So Saul has died in battle against the Philistines, but again, at this point, David did not know anything about that. If you remember from the end of 1 Samuel, he had been living outside of the land of Israel because he felt like he needed to because Saul was chasing him all over the place and he felt like he needed to go to the land of the Philistines just to survive. And so he had been living in this Philistine city named Ziklag. Uh, But what happened at the end of the book of 1 Samuel, while David was away, some people came, the Amalekites came, and they actually burned down the city of Ziklag. They took as hostage all of David and his men's wives and all of their children. When David got back to Ziklag and saw that, he marshaled his army together. They pursued the Amalekites. They defeated them. Uh, He rescued all of the hostages, all of their wives and their children, and came back to the burned down city of Ziklag, and that's where he was. And the text says in verse 2 that on the third day, after David got back to Ziklag, that this messenger comes, and we find out later that this messenger was also an Amalekite. Now, since David just got back from slaughtering the Amalekites, it doesn't bode well for this man right away when we hear that he also is an Amalekite. But he comes running from the battlefield. He has all the signs of mourning going on in his appearance. His clothes are torn. He has ashes on his head. It's evident that he is the bearer of bad news, and he falls down before David. Presumably, he had already heard that David was going to be the next king, and he came looking specifically for him. And David asked him where he came from and how the battle went. And in verse 4, you see the man's report there. The report isn't good. Israel lost. Many people lost their lives, including King Saul and Jonathan, Saul's son and David's best friend. But before David and his men react to that news, David wants to be sure. And so he says, well, how do you know for sure that what you're telling me is true, that Saul and Jonathan have died? And and the man basically says, because I killed him. And to be more precise, what the Amalekite man says is that he was wandering around the battlefield for some reason. He never really tells us what that reason is or who he was fighting for, but he claims that when he was on the battlefield that King Saul turned around and saw him and asked him to come and stand over him and put him out of his misery because he was injured. And so the man describes what he did to King Saul as more or less a mercy killing because he says, I knew that he could not survive his injuries. And then he said he took King Saul's crown off his head, and he took his armlet off his arm, and he came running with those royal insignia, and he brought them all the way to David to present them to him. And so that is this guy's story. And the narrator is just telling us the story exactly as he tells it to David, but we know that his story is fishy. And his story is fishy because if we've read the end of 1 Samuel, we already know how King Saul died. And it wasn't the way this guy said it was. In fact, go back with me, if you would, to chapter 31 of 1 Samuel and look at verse 3. It says, The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to the armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. And therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men died together the same day. So this is the narrator telling us how Saul actually died. He was injured by the Philistines' archers. That part is true. He did ask someone to finish him off, but it wasn't this Amalekite. It was his own armor bearer. And we read that his own armor bearer would not dare do that. And so Saul, in the story, commits suicide. He falls on his sword and dies. And after he does that, his armor bearer does the same. And this Amalekite is nowhere near. To be found, And so what we now know is that this book of 2 Samuel starts out with a lie. It starts out with this Amalekite running up to David with this story about how he killed King Saul, but it's a story that he has made up. Nothing of the sort actually happened. And it doesn't really take a genius to figure out why he would make up such a story. Clearly, he thought that David was going to be happy to hear that Saul was dead. Clearly, he thought that David would think, well, now my way is clear to be the next king of Israel, and he probably thought that by bringing the crown to David and bringing that armlet to David, that he was going to receive a reward, or perhaps he was even going to get a position in the new White House, right, in the new administration, But the Amalekite completely misjudges David's character because David wasn't happy at all that King Saul had died. In verse 11 and 12, you see how he responded to that news. It says, therefore, David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And we've called this series, A Man After God's Own Heart, because that's actually how God describes King David. God calls him a man after my own heart. And in other words, according to God, David was a godly man and he wasn't a perfect man and we'll see that especially later on in this book but he was a godly man and there's a lot to learn from David in this book about the way that a godly man or a godly woman should live and and even in this part of the story that we're looking at this morning there are at least five qualities of a godly person that stand out to me I want to look at each of them in turn as we go along, and I want us to ask ourselves along the way whether we see these same five qualities in our own lives that we see here in David. Here's the first one right here. A godly person has a far greater concern for God's people as a whole than he does for himself or herself. There is no question that if David's greatest concern was what was best for him personally, then he would have been throwing a yay, King Saul is dead party at this moment. Because think about it with me, if you would. David has been living like a fugitive for years. King Saul has been chasing him all over the place for years, multiple times. King Saul has thrown spears at his head. It was like it was his favorite pastime to chuck a spear at David's head. This was his life for years. He had no peace. He had no rest, and he had done nothing to deserve this treatment. All he had done was faithfully serve King Saul and now with King Saul dead, the door was finally open for him to be the king of Israel just like the prophet Samuel said he was going to be years before when he anointed his head with oil that day in Bethlehem. And so for all of those reasons and more, a lesser man than David would have been celebrating at this moment. But instead, we read that David Tore his clothes and fasted and mourned and wept, and so did all of his men with him. And verse 12 tells us why it says that he did all of this. He wept and mourned for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. David's number one concern was not what was best for him, it was what was best for the people of God. And it's at this point that we need to stop and ask ourselves, is that the case for us? Is is our main concern today what is best for us personally or what is best for the people of God? Sadly, many Christians today don't even think in terms of we when it comes to the people of God. They only think in terms of me. What, What I like and what I Want. And so when it comes to the church, when it comes to the people of God, anytime a decision is made that they do not like a a professing Christian, Oftentimes we'll complain about it or just simply run for the hills until they find a church that will cater to their every whim and desire. And you see that mindset in many whole churches today where the majority of folks in the church are really only interested in what is best for them. Their ministry, their event, their agenda, because they are not thinking about as what is best for the whole church, let alone How the church can have the biggest impact outside the walls with those who desperately need to hear about Jesus. I'm so thankful that in our church, I don't see that mindset, that I see a people who have the heart of David. I see a people who demonstrate over and over again your willingness to set aside your own personal preferences in order to bless others in our church family and in order that we might better take this gospel to our neighbors who need to hear it. I'm thankful for your heart in that because it isn't about our preferences, is it? It isn't about us at all. It's about the gospel and it's about our king and it's about the people of God and that's the heart that David has here. And because he had that heart, where others might have rejoiced and celebrated because of what was best for them, he mourns and he weeps with the people of God because God's anointed king was dead. And that was something to be mourned. And then in verse 13, David turns his attention back to the Amalekite messenger who brought him this news. And he questions him again. Look at verse 13. David said to the young man who told him, where, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. Now that word alien doesn't mean a Martian or anything. It's similar to the way we speak about someone being a resident alien in our country. A person who was a sojourner. So he was an Amalekite, but he was living among the people of God as a resident in Israel. And maybe you say, well, why does that make a difference? Well, what it means, the bottom line is this, as a sojourner living among the Israelites, he should have known better. He should have known better than to lay his hand on the anointed king of Israel. After all, Saul's armor bearer knew better than to do that. David himself knew better than to do that. Two times in the book of 1 Samuel, David had an opportunity to kill King Saul. Once when he came into a cave and he didn't know David was there. Another time when he was fast asleep on the battlefield, lying right at David's feet. And yet both times, David does not lay his hand on him because he knows better. And he thinks that this man should know better. And that's why he says in verse 14, how was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Now to be clear, again, this man didn't actually kill King Saul, but remember David at this point has no way of knowing that. And so what David says here and what David is about to do to this man is based off of this man's own testimony of what he said he did to King Saul. And I love what David says to him. How is it that you are not Afraid. Here's a second quality of godly people that you can hear in David's words there. A godly person has a healthy fear of God that governs his or her decisions. And David had that healthy fear of God. It's what kept him from killing Saul on those two occasions when he had the chance to do so. But based on this man's own testimony, he had no such fear of God. And David is amazed by that. He doesn't understand it. He said, how is it that you could fear God so little that you could do this and think that you could get away with it? You know, what the Bible says is that whether or not a person has this basic fear of, Of God, in many ways, is what distinguishes a believer from an unbeliever. In Romans chapter 3, Paul is writing about how all of us are sinners, how there is none righteous, no, not one. But then the last thing he says there, he says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the picture of an unbeliever no fear of God before their eyes. I saw that on display this week with an ad that uh, President Reagan's son, Ron Reagan, ran on TV during the presidential debate promoting an atheist group called Freedom From Religion. In fact, that ad and Ron Reagan personally was the most searched thing on Google during the presidential campaign. And this is the very last line of that ad. He said this, I'm a lifelong atheist, not afraid of burning in hell. that's what I would call no fear of God. But but a godly person will have a completely different attitude. A, A godly person does fear God. A godly person will pray the words of the psalmist in Psalm 86. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. A Christian's fear of God is not a slavish fear of hell. We know as believers in Jesus that heaven is in our future because Jesus Christ already experienced hell for us in our place when he died on the cross and paid for our sins. And so the fear of God that we have as his children is a fear that, as one called it, is grounded in love. It's the kind of fear that a son has for his loving father. It's a fear of displeasing the one that we love. We fear God because we love him and we want to please him. And if we have that fear of God in our hearts and in our minds, then then, then that will come to our minds and our hearts with every decision that we're about to make. We'll think, will this decision please my father or not? And if it will not, then the fear of God should keep us from making that decision. This fear is something that David had. And again, it's something that this Amalekite did not. And David was appalled. And David said, how is it that you feared God so little? And then in verse 15, David tells one of his servants to go over and kill this Amalekite, to execute him. And David says in verse 16 that he sealed his fate with his own mouth because he said that he killed the Lord's anointed one. Again, David didn't know that he didn't actually do it, but in the end it made no difference. The man died for the lie that he told. He died for what he said he had done. And I'm sure that this guy, this Amalekite, probably could not believe what was happening to him. I bet he could not believe it even when David's servant was walking towards him with his sword in his hand. He probably thought the whole time, this has to be some kind of joke. Because in his mind, why would David not be happy? His enemy was dead The crown was now his. And and he's probably thinking, I told him I helped take his enemy out. Why would I not be rewarded for that? Why would I be killed for that? This was a surprising turn of events for this man and not in a good way. Here's a lesson we can learn from that. It's another godly quality we see in David. A godly person will act in ways that an ungodly world finds surprising. Again, David's response to the news of Saul's death was surprising and even shocking to this Amalekite man. He assumed David was like any other normal man, that David would be happy to hear that his enemy was dead, that he had a pathway in front of him to live in peace, that he had a pathway to now be the king. But David wasn't like any normal man. David was a godly man, David was a man after God's own heart, and he did not rejoice. That his enemy was dead. And you know what? Whenever, like David, we live in a way where we're thinking more about other people than we're thinking about ourselves, whenever we give up our rights, Whenever we basically live the way Jesus taught us to live, the world is not going to understand that. The world's not going to get that at all. It's going to be completely surprising and shocking to them. The the world does not understand why you go through the hassle of coming to church every week. The world doesn't know why would you get up on the one day a week that you have to sleep in and struggle with all your kids and struggle to get them all ready and get out the door and come to church. The world is wondering why you and I bother That The world does not understand why you would take your money and give it to the Lord or give it to the church or give it to something like this greater things vision that God has given us. The world does not understand why you would do any of that when you can use that money on yourself or your family or something that you would enjoy. They do not get that at all. The world doesn't know why you or I want to serve either. That they don't know why you want to spend all your time serving with those kids or with those teenagers or in the choir. Why do you get up early to come and do that? Why do you stay late? Why do you take a week of your vacation and go somewhere to tell people about Jesus and you have to pay your own money to go there? That's crazy to those who do not know Christ. But you know what? We are living for a different king than they are. And since we are, there should be times when we as followers of Jesus do things that make zero sense to those who are not followers of Jesus. It's just like it was with King David. A godly person will act in ways that an ungodly world finds surprising. Earlier, David and his men had responded to the news of Saul's death by just erupting in just an impromptu mourning. But now, a little bit after that, starting in verse 17, David uses his poetic skill, the same skill that we see on display in the book of Psalms, and he composes a lament song for Israel to sing as they mourned for Saul, as they mourned for Jonathan, and as they remembered Saul and Jonathan for centuries to come. Let's read that together, starting in verse 17. Then David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son, And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Let the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offering, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided." They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O oh, daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen. In the midst of the battle, Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. So David wanted this beautiful song to be sung in Judah. He wanted people to remember Saul and Jonathan. And so he includes it, or it is included, in this book called the Book of Jasher. Now that is a book that did not survive, but it's mentioned one other time in the Old Testament. Apparently it was a collection of of poetry and songs about key events and heroes in the history of God's people. The the chorus of this particular song is that sad refrain, How the mighty have fallen. And you hear it three times in this psalm. It's there in verse 19 and shows up again in verse 25 and again in verse 27. I wish that we had time to study this poem in, in depth because there's a lot here. That we could talk about. But the main thing I want us to notice with the time that we have is how well David speaks about Saul and about Jonathan in this song. I mean, as you skim over the words here, some of what he says is specific to Jonathan, some of what he says is specific to Saul. But but about one or the other of them, he uses language like this The beauty of Israel, he calls them, he calls them the mighty. He says that they are beloved and pleasant. He says that they are swift and strong. He says that they provided nice things for the people of God through their leadership and their victory in battle. And he calls on the people of of God to weep for them. Now, it's not surprising to me that David would say such glowing things about Jonathan because Jonathan was a glowing, godly character. And he was the best friend, by the way, that David could have ever asked for. And you can just hear how David is crushed at the loss of his best friend, Jonathan. And that's why in verse 26, he even goes so far as to say, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You've been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Now it's really more a product, I think, of our own culture's sexualizing of everything that some people have tried to read into this verse a homosexual relationship between Jonathan and David but nothing could be farther from the truth and what David is simply saying here is that actually no woman in his life including his own wives and he had several loved him with the kind of self-sacrificing love that his friend Jonathan loved him with Jonathan was heir to the throne And yet he recognized God's hand upon David. He recognized that it was God's will for David to be king instead of him. And so Jonathan lays that down explicitly in 1 Samuel. He lays that down and he says, you are going to be king and I'll be next after you. And he was okay with that. And he did everything in his power to help David, to be a loyal friend to David. And David knew, as we all should know, how rare it is to have a friend like that. And if you do have a friend like that, you need to thank them and tell them what they mean to you, not only once they're gone, but even while they're still alive. And so again, it's really not that surprising to hear David saying such glowing things about Jonathan, but it is surprising to me, I don't know about for you, but to hear David saying such glowing things about King Saul. King Saul, the man that had been hunting him down for years, the man who had tried to kill him because he was jealous of him, and yet here is David saying such glowing things about Saul. And let me just ask you that. If someone had tried to kill you for years, had literally thrown a spear at your head, and then you got invited to give the eulogy at their funeral, would you be able to say the words about them that you read here? In verse 23, he says that both Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant. Beloved and pleasant? I mean, wow. And here is another godly quality that we see in David's character that I believe the Lord also wants to see in us. A godly person speaks graciously about others. You know, Saul was not all bad, like we said before. He started out well, but he lost his way. And in this song, David is gracious to remember and to talk about the best characteristics of Saul and not the worst characteristics of Saul. And that's amazing, especially when you consider that David was the target of the very worst behavior of Saul in his lifetime. And yet still, David chooses, when speaking about Saul, to emphasize the best in him. And church, we should all be like David in that. We should be a people that speaks the best of others. Now that doesn't mean that we don't address sin in others' lives or the lives of those that we love. It doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to it, but in general, When we are speaking about other people, we should speak well of them. While the world likes to gossip about others and speak poorly about them behind their back and trash others and do everything they can to tear other people down, it should not be so in the church of Jesus Christ. We should look for and indeed see the best in other people. We should speak graciously of them and celebrate what is good in them. Because Jesus taught us to do unto others as we would want them to do unto you. And when other people are talking about you, do you want them to rattle off the list of the worst things that you've ever done? Or do you want them to speak about the best things that you've ever done? If that's what we would want others to do for us, is that not what we should do for others? And if David could do that about a man who literally threw a spear at his head and tried to kill him, then can we not do that about someone who makes a snippy comment or two at our expense? And we see this principle all over the world that people, we as people who have received God's grace should be a people who show God's grace and that includes speaking graciously about other people. Let's read the last few verses in our story for today. Chapter two, verse one. It says, it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, where shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, so they dwelt in the city of Hebron. Now the men of Judah came, and and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you've done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hand be strengthened and be valiant for your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. The last quality that I want us to see for today is there in those first few verses of chapter two. It's something so simple and yet something so important. A godly person seeks God's guidance for their lives. If you remember where David was at this point in time, he was in Ziklag, a city in enemy territory. The city had been burned to the ground, so he and his men could no longer stay there. And now that Saul was dead, David was free to re-enter the land of Israel. But it wasn't like it was a totally safe situation. As we'll find out next week, Saul still had sons. He still had people in power that wanted to oppose David. The Philistines had outposts everywhere. And so David, I'm sure, had an idea of what he thought would be the best thing to do or where he should go. But in verse 1, he does what every believer should do when faced with a decision. He seeks the Lord and he asks him what he should do and where he should go. Look at verse 1. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. Friend, I don't know what decision is in front of you right now. Maybe it's a decision about what college to attend. Maybe it's a decision about who to date or who to marry. Maybe it's a decision about a job. Maybe it's a decision about a financial matter. Maybe it's a decision that has to do with one of your children or grandchildren. I don't know what it is, but I do know that we all face decisions in our life, and we know that the Lord has infinite wisdom infinite more wisdom than we have and the lord wants to guide us the lord wants to help us in fact he promises to do so if we would seek his guidance one of my favorite verses a verse that pastor doug wrote on every card that he gave me years ago when he was my student pastor is proverbs 3 5 and 6 and it says this trust in the lord with all your heart And lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. What a wonderful promise that God gives us. If we would just seek him, instead of relying on our own understanding, he will guide us, he will direct us, just as he does David in this story. Now, the city where God leads David to, Hebron, is famous in Old Testament history. It's one of the places where Abraham lived. It's actually the place where Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of their wives were buried. It was located in a land that belonged to the tribe of Judah, which was David's tribe. And so it doesn't take long after David and his men arrive in Hebron that the men of Judah come and anoint David as their king. David had already been anointed by Samuel years before as the next king of Israel but this is the moment when David actually becomes king this is the moment when David actually begins to reign and so you can put a big historical marker next to that verse in your bible this is a momentous event in the history of the bible now at this point David is not the king over all of Israel he would have to wait seven more years for that to take place But God's anointed king is ruling and reigning on the earth. It starts small, his kingdom does, and it grows from there. It reminds me of another king and another kingdom. When the Lord Jesus said his kingdom that he began would start like a tiny mustard seed hidden away and would grow and grow until it filled all of heaven and all of earth. And one day our great king will come and rule and reign on the earth, At the end of verse 4 and down to verse 7, the topic of conversation is this city, Jabesh-Gilead. And we read about that city at the end of 1 Samuel, because after Saul died, the Philistines took Saul's body and the bodies of his son, and they took those bodies and they nailed them up on a wall. But the men of Jabesh-Gilead traveled 20 miles throughout the night to take down their bodies from the wall and to give them a proper burial. And David hears about that. And so David graciously sends messengers to these men. And I think he sends messengers for two reasons to this city. One, to thank them, to thank them for honoring King Saul, honoring their king. And he prays that the Lord would bless them for that. But the second reason he sends messengers is to invite them, to graciously invite them to begin following him as their new king. And look at how gracious he is as he does that in verse 7. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. And we'll find out next week that despite David's invitation, the people of Jabesh-Gilead do not follow him right away. They decide to follow a rival king, one of Saul's sons. And maybe you're thinking, well, why why does that matter? Why does what a city decided to do 3,000 years ago, whether to follow David or not, why does that have anything to do with us? Well, it has actually a lot to do with us. Because if you think about it, we are all living in Jabesh Gilead. They had to decide whether or not to follow David as their king. And we all have that same choice today. We all have to decide today whether we are going to follow the son of David, King Jesus, or not. And Jesus is a gracious king. He he forgives us. He not only forgives his enemies like David did, but he died for them. He died for all of us who have lived as his enemies, who have lived in rebellion to him and to his word, and yet he suffered and paid for that sin on the cross, and on the third day he rose again and is alive even now. And so right now he invites us as our king to come to him and to receive forgiveness and to receive life instead of the death that our sins deserve. Friend, will you come? Will you follow your king? Who died for you and who rose again. I know today we've talked about being a godly person and we looked at some of the qualities that godly people have, but I'm concerned that you might hear all of that and you might go away and you think, okay, well, well, that's what I've got to do, right? I've got I've to do these five things. I've got I've to try to live in a godly way, and if I live in a godly way, then maybe I'll be saved one day. That's not how it works at all. In fact, here, here is the truth, friend. You can't be a godly person if you don't know God. And you don't know God if you have never surrendered your life to his son and our king, King Jesus. The the invitation today is, is not, I hope you hear me, it is not to leave this place and try our hardest to be godly. Because that's not how it works. The invitation is to come to know Jesus Christ personally by faith. One day there was a large crowd of 5,000 people that was following Jesus and he took just a couple of fish and five loaves of bread and he, and he multiplied it and he fed all 5,000 of those men and their families. And in John 6, they, they came to him and they, they said this to him. They said, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? How can we do these godly, miraculous things that, that you're doing? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And then a little bit later, Jesus added this. He said, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up on the last day. What a promise. Friend, you are living in Jabesh Gilead and your king has sent a messenger to you with an invitation today to follow your King, to believe in Him, and to receive everlasting life. What will you decide? I want to ask you to stand as we worship the Lord, as we sing praises to Him. You know, maybe you're here today and and maybe it's, it's your first time here. Maybe somebody invited you today to come to worship. Maybe you didn't know what to expect, but God has spoken to your heart. And and I want to give you an invitation as well. I want to invite you right now to leave the place where you're standing and and to come here to the front and to speak with me and one of the other pastors that you'll see standing here, at the head of each of these aisles. And just to come and to say, I want to receive that invitation today. I want to receive life. I want to receive forgiveness. I want to receive hope. I want to begin my journey of following King Jesus in this life.